we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. So last week we introduced this brand new series um, in the letter to the Philippians. Now, if you're new with us today, let me first say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But if you're new with us today, I want to tell you a little something about Reverse. Now, Reverse is part of our culture of Bible study in the First Baptist family. We commit ourselves to read together in small group Bible study, uh, on our own, in our personal quiet time, and in receiving that word during our worship gathering, we commit to doing all of the same reading and uh, from the same passage together every single week. So for the course of 13 weeks, we're very literally on the same page together. And this is week two of being on the same page together in the letter to the Philippians. And so if you hear me talking about reverse, that's what I'm referring to. Also, let me just mention, uh, especially for you folks at home, today is Lord's Supper Sunday. And if you need to just step away for a moment, I give you permission to get the elements that you need so you're not caught off guard later on in our time of remembering what Christ has done for us on the cross and in the res resurrection. But so here we are. In week two of this letter to the Philippian church. And already we have understood the major theme that has kind of trickled up to the top, bubbled up to the top of this letter as joy. In fact, the theme of this whole series is pure joy. And we see that right off the bat from last week. And we're going to see it again and speak to it again this week. But let me just remind you what we're already beginning to understand is that Paul's joy isn't flippant joy. Uh, his joy uh, doesn't just come from temporary circumstances, but his joy springs out of his confidence in who Jesus is and his love and affection for Christ. He is enamored uh, by this person, Jesus. Now, in fact, last week we said things like this, that Paul was caught up in the gravitational pool of Jesus, the Son of God, in much the same way that the earth is caught up in the gravitational pull of the sun. He can't step away from it. He's caught up into it. In fact, his very being, his giftedness and his ministry and his purpose and his life is sustained by the sun. And it's from that reality in Paul's life that the sun is the very center that his joy springs from. His joy springs from. And that's good news. Now, I also told you last week that I'm going to do my best to go verse by verse, which means that um, I'm going to be behind in reverse a little bit. I'm going to do my best to catch up. So last week we left off, we finished at verse 4, and this week I'm going to begin in verse 5, and then when we get to verse 12, I'm going to have you stand and we're all going to read it together. Is that okay? Awesome. So let me read to you verses... Four. I'll begin in verse 4, and we'll go all the way through um, into verse 11. Paul says, Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. We talked about that last week. We were like, if we have anything to learn about joy, we want to learn it from Paul. 
right? And we'll get to more of that in a minute. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Verse 6, and I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until he is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So, it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me in the special favor of God, or grace, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray... This is Paul's prayer. Now, let me just point out something really quickly. It is customary for Paul in all of his letters to introduce himself or whoever is with him, in this case, Timothy, and then he usually has a section where he's thankful for them. We've already covered that. And then he turns to praying for them, and then he gets to the body of the letter. So here's the prayer. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. This church, this little church, brings Paul a lot of joy because of a very personal relationship with him. From the very beginning, these verses teach us that the Philippians were on board with what God was doing through the Apostle Paul. From day one, when Lydia came to faith in Christ, she says, come to my house. And we have the first house church in Lydia's home. And her whole family and servants come to faith in Christ. And so from the very beginning, uh, Paul has built this partnership with this church all the way through his imprisonment, and likely even they supported him through his other missionary journeys. But even in his imprisonment, we know, because we're going to get there later on in this letter, is that the Philippian church sent a care package to Paul so that he could have his most basic needs met. And so, uh, which actually is the whole reason why he writes this letter, is because he's received a care package from them and he's replying to them. But this is just a clear picture of this beautiful personal partnership that he has with this church. And that's why he says from the beginning in verse 5, you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. A wonderful partnership. These, this is not a church that has sat on God's grace. You remember the, the, uh, the parable that Jesus told about the master and the business owner who gave out money to his employees and said, I'm going away for a while. I'm going to give you five, give you 10, and give you uh, 20. And the guy with five dollars just sat on it and buried it because he was scared to death of the business owner, right? They did not sit on what God had given them. They multiplied it. Here is a church that did not sit on their laurels, but multiplied the grace of God in their life, grew the church in telling of the story of God all around them, and it is evident in Paul's relationship with them and his testimony about them. In verse 6, 
Paul says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Paul is again pointing back to verse 2. Remember verse 2, Paul says, And I'm asking God to give you more grace and peace. That's what I'm asking God. Because Paul knows that we don't accomplish this work of righteousness on our own. That we are redeemed by Jesus because of his work on the cross and the resurrection. We are made right with God. But even God sustains that in our life. We are made more righteous because of God's grace, not because of our work. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, I'm confident because I know God is good on his promise in your life. And I'm confident in God's work. I'm not confident in your work, but I'm confident in God's work of grace to finish what he has started in your life up until the very day that Jesus returns. And this is another very important truth for us to remember that Paul is referring to. He's going to refer to it twice in this text, that God is doing a work in us by the grace of God. It's not our work. It's not our work. It's a work of grace. We become more and more like Jesus because of the grace of God at work in our life. And then that will come to completion when? When Jesus returns. When Jesus returns. And so we can trust, just as Paul trusts, that wherever you are on your spiritual journey, if you are a son and daughter of God, that it is by God's grace that you sin less, that you have more victories, and you become more and more like Jesus. You love more. You serve more. Um, and that's a work of Christ. But all of that will be completed when? When Jesus returns and the resurrection of the dead happens. In verses 7 and 8, I love these words. There's so much affection with Paul uh, to this little church. He says, so it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. I love our partnership, Paul says. I love our partnership together. And it's right that I feel this way about you. God is doing a work in you. He says, you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Paul is alluding to that though Paul is in Rome under house arrest and there in Philippi, that they are bound together under the same grace of God. It's more than just an agreement between the two of them that we're in this thing together. It's God's grace at work in both of them that has bound them together that has already led to some really cool fruit. One of them being, which Paul says, you've been with me even in my imprisonment. And the Philippian church has taken it upon themselves to care for and try to meet the needs of Paul. And he says, in that way, I can see that the grace that led you to meet my need and the, the grace that's sustaining me in my imprisonment has bound us together. So that we together, under God's grace, are affirming and defending the gospel with one another. What a partnership that Paul and this church has. They are bound together by that same grace. And then he gets to his prayer. 
He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. So Paul has demonstrated his thanksgiving in his partnership with them. And now he turns to, I'm praying for you. And this is how I'm praying for you. He prays for knowledge, love to overflow, and for knowledge and understanding to keep growing in their life. Now, um, love, knowledge, and understanding are interconnected things, aren't they? Much like a healthy friendship or a healthy marriage, um, the deeper you grow in knowledge and understanding of that other, the more abounding in love you are, right? The more it becomes less about you and more about the other, the more that you abound and overflow in love for the other. And that's what Paul is talking about. So when this kind of growth in knowledge and understanding happens, that overflows in love, when it happens in marriage, it begins to change how you see and relate to one another. It begins to change how you serve one another. You begin to give each other the benefit of the doubt more often. You become champions for one another. You get into a rhythm in marriage or in friendship where that type of knowledge and understanding of one another begins to bear real fruit. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, I am praying that your love abounds more and more. That your life just overflows in love with, with the Father and, and with me and with others that God, and, and the lives of others that God has put in your path. And that comes by way of intentionally investing in understand the growth in knowledge and understanding, which all comes by way of the grace of God. And Paul says, I know that when that kind of knowledge and understanding grows, when that overflow of love begins to happen, you begin to see the world in a whole new way. You begin to live in a whole new perspective. Things begin to change when knowledge and understanding grows and love abounds. And Paul says, I want you to have the right view of the world. I want you to know what matters most in this world. That's how I'm praying. And that comes by way of growth and knowledge and understanding that results in abounding in love. That's how Paul is praying. He prays for fruitfulness. That as those things take shape in their life, they look more and more like Jesus. This is echoing what Paul writes in the Roman the book of Romans. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And ultimately, that kind of work, that kind of growth, that kind of abounding in love, seeing the world the way God sees the world, that kind of change having taking place in his life. Ultimately, what Paul is saying, I want those kind of changes to increase in your life so that you're caught up in the gravitational pull of the sun just like I am, where you can't shake Jesus. And he changes everything in your life. And ultimately, that reflects the glory of the Son to all praise and glory to Jesus, he says. But isn't that just how things work? As we 
grow deeper in love and affection with Jesus and our knowledge and understanding grows, isn't that just how things work? As we are pulled into the gravitational pull of the sun, doesn't it make sense that we just begin to reflect his glory? We're image bearers after all, made in the image of God. That's what Jesus is restoring in us. That's why he went to the cross and rose from the grave, so that we could be caught up in the things that are most important, which is God himself, by his Son, through the Holy Spirit. And the end result is that we bear his glorious image to the praise and glory of God. Now, when we read these first few verses... There's something that I think we have to identify as to what's taking shape here. It's easy for us, especially as Western Christians, to try to discern a formula here. Right? Try to discern, okay, what do I need to do to be more like Jesus? Okay, got to have more knowledge. Or, well, no, is love first or is it, which comes first? Is it knowledge and understanding, then love? And then I want to bear fruit. And so our temptation is to try to curate out of these verses some type of formula that we can kind of add to our life that yields sanctification. Paul's not trying to write down a formula for us. What we're seeing here is a very clear modeling of what real Christian fellowship looks like. Right? Paul is demonstrating for us what it means to step into the lives of people and, and through his testimony, what it means for a church to step into the life of Paul. And we're seeing this give and take, this partnership that ebbs and flows out from one another that yields the kind of righteousness and sanctification that the Scriptures talk about the whole time. It's not about a formula. It's about Christian fellowship. Do we have people in our life? Do we have... Uh, groups of people in our life that are willing to relate to us like Paul relates to the Philippian church. I'm thankful for you. I'm going to tell you why. I'm praying for you, and this is how I'm praying for you. For knowledge and love and understanding to grow. Um, we, we throw around the word fellowship, but I'm not certain we understand what it really means. Christian fellowship is not just sharing the same space together. It really isn't even just sharing a meal together, although those are important things to do. Uh, Christian fellowship is not watching the same show together. It's not even watching the same DVD-based Bible study together. Christian fellowship is not just being in the same room. Uh, Christian fellowship is being partners It is sharing the same purpose, and it's the willingness to speak that purpose into one another, and the willingness to gently hold each other accountable. It's it's forgiving one another. It's when we do gather around a meal that we talk about the purposes of God. And that might not be our whole conversation, but Jesus happens to come up in conversation when we're in Christian fellowship. Why? Because... Our fellowship is built around who we are in Jesus and the purposes of God, which is His kingdom. In Christian fellowship, 
we begin to align our lives together because of mutual encouragement and prayer and thanksgiving, we begin to align our lives around the purposes of God. And we begin to ask, how can I help you be more like Jesus? Or how can I further along what God is doing in your life? Or how can God fulfill his purpose right now in the circumstances that you're facing? How can I help you do that? Or see that. That's Christian fellowship. And we need more of that. Christian fellowship is where we make decisions together, challenge each other, forgive each other. Um, It's the church. And we need more and more of that. I do. I certainly do. Um, I have just a few minutes to do two verses. I'm going to invite you. I know we've never done this before, but we're going to stand together and read these last two verses, and I'm going to try to wrap up where we are. Um, So let's stand. You can stand. Let's read verses 12 and 14 with one another. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speaks God's message without fear. You may be seated. Thank you for doing that with me. For some of you, that's, damn, that was awkward. That's okay. So now we're into the body of the letter. Paul has done his normal greeting. He has, he has shared his thanks for them, and he has shared his prayer for them. And we get to the body of the letter, and we find out that obviously the Philippians are concerned about Paul's well-being. And Paul says, I don't want you to be concerned anymore. Because God is using my circumstance to advance the gospel. And he gives three ways in which the gospel has been advanced while under house arrest. Now remember, the whole goal of Paul being under house arrest is to stop him from what he's doing. God has far bigger plans than that. He says, listen, there are three things that have happened in the advancement of the gospel under house arrest. One, all the guards, all my handlers, and likely their families have heard the gospel from me. Everyone who comes in contact with me has heard the gospel from me. Secondly, he says, and everyone knows why I'm here. Everyone knows I'm here because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Remember, his world revolves around Christ. So it makes sense for Paul to say, I want everyone to know why I am here. I'm here because of Christ. And lastly, he says, and my imprisonment has given courage to many believers to share the story of Jesus with boldness. And so even when the enemy, even enemies that would want to keep Paul in prison, to keep him talking about the one who died for the sins of the world and rose from the grave, even those who would seek to diminish the message, it only served to advance the message. And so Paul says, listen, Don't be concerned about me because God is doing exactly what he wants to do in my life in the middle of this circumstance. Listen, what I love most about Paul is that he lives what he says. When he says things like this in Romans 8, 28, don't you know that our God is big enough to hold all things together and work all things together out for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? He just doesn't write that stuff. He believes it and lives that stuff. Paul does not glory in his circumstances. 
He's not celebrating that he's in prison. What he is celebrating is that that his world revolves around a Jesus, a Savior, who can even use the most drastic and dire circumstances to do what he wants, which is to advance the gospel. And don't we need to hear that? Don't we need that kind of joy that says... God will use my circumstance to advance the gospel. Maybe the questions that we need to start asking ourselves about the circumstances that we face in life is not, why in the world, Lord, are you put me in this situation? Now, that's not a terrible question, but you're likely not to get an answer, at least not the one that you want or not in the timing that you want. But maybe the question we should begin asking ourselves, if, if God, you work all things out according to your good purpose, then what's your purpose in this circumstance? And more importantly, almost 100% of God's purposes point towards other people. So God says, my purpose in almost every circumstance is for you to overflow in love for other people around your life. So we should be asking ourselves, whatever circumstance we find ourselves, especially the hard ones, Lord, how are you going to use this circumstance that I don't like for my love to overflow and bless the people around me? That's how Paul was thinking and living. You know, he tells the, the church in Thessaloniki, he says, I want you to be thankful for everything. Because it's God's will for your life. Because he fulfills his purposes. And it's not because God and his management of the universe and all of history just wants us to experience lots of pain. No, he says, I'm going to use pain in a broken and suffering world, which I'm redeeming. But I'm going to even redeem the situation and circumstance so that you can love and serve other people and tell the story of God. Who's big enough to help us. And restore us and redeem us. We need those kind of reminders. God uses circumstances. Um, in 2013, I took a, a um, I was in China. Later, I would take a team of students to China, but I was in a a small group of adults, and we were doing a discovery trip in China. It was two weeks after the significant earthquake in Sichuan uh, province outside of the city of Chengdu. And so we had the privilege uh, of doing some real work in ministry, and we went to those displaced families. And one of those locations was a huge soccer stadium and we were just in the parking lot of the stadium, and there were literally hundreds of displaced families and scattered throughout this parking lot, and there were just stacks of bottles of water and food in different places. And here we are, uh, three um, uh, white guys um, in this tough situation amidst among these families uh, who had been displaced from their homes because of, a, of an earthquake. Horrible circumstance. And we're doing what we can. Uh, one of the guys is a musician. He's playing guitar. And, well, obviously, four white guys and one um, happened to be 6'10", really big dude. Just we got a lot of attention. 
But it wasn't long. We were there for about 10 minutes, and people were crowding around us that we discovered that there was a small church that was there too. And I don't know of which, which leader of ours they spoke to, but um, under the providence of God in the middle of that circumstance, those four white guys, myself included, provided enough distraction to give the freedom from this little church to share the gospel with many people one-on-one. What a reminder that God will use the most harrowing and difficult circumstances, even the smallest circumstances that rub like grains of sand in our shoes, to use for his purpose and his ways only if we have the eyes to see it. Only if we have the eyes to see it. Let's pray. Father God, um, we um, rejoice in the testimony of Paul in this church. Um, we rejoice in the reminders that you are a God who big, who's big enough to work in every circumstance. To draw attention to yourself. Uh, to bring the story of hope and redemption to the lives of others. And so, Father, we ask you to forgive us where we have forgotten that and we've just become complainers and grumblers. But, Lord, help us to be joyful people and thankful people, not because we're thankful for the circumstance, but we're thankful for your story at work in the midst of the circumstance. Help us to love and be a blessing to people in the same way that Paul was a blessing to people in his life. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.